welcome in episode five of Mets Mayhem. Andrew May, your host. This is going to be one of the happiest episodes we've had so far this season. And I mean, why not? Tremendous week for the New York Mets this week. We're happy go lucky. We're in a good mood. No reason to be freaking out. No reason to say the sky is falling. I mean, everything is fine and dandy in Metsland this week. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to roll through this episode and keep a positive vibe throughout because if you watch Mets baseball this week, there is a lot to be excited about. Uh, so as always, we'll go through the same format we usually do, um, except we're not going to go into any storylines from last week because quite frankly, there's a lot of different things to get to this week and not a lot to complain about, but just a lot of things to break down and get to this week. So we're going to kind of tweak the format slightly and just go with an additional couple of storylines uh, for this week to look forward to as well. Uh, but we'll start things off by recapping the week as we always do. And like I said, a lot to be excited about the Mets Finished the week with a 5-2 record. They're now sitting at 16-13. and 13, Good enough for first place in the National League East. And the week did not start off great. They lost the first two games of the week to the Cardinals. And you kind of had this feeling like there was a dark cloud looming over the Mets. A lot of the same mistakes were being made that led to losses. And it was just it just wasn't a good feeling to start the week. But they bounce back and they win the last five. They take the last two games against the Cardinals to split the four-game series, two games apiece. And then a huge, huge three-game sweep of the Diamondbacks at home over the weekend concluded a nice 4-2 to victory today to complete the sweep. And quite frankly, I said this to a couple of buddies of mine going into the series, that three-game set against the Diamondbacks, that was a series that the Mets needed to sweep. If the Mets want to achieve what they set out to achieve this season— and they want to reach their ultimate goals and be a postseason team and win this division, the Arizona Diamondbacks are a team that you have to sweep. That's just the way it is. They're not a good baseball team. They don't have a good lineup. Yes, they came into the series, I believe, with the second most runs scored in the National League. It's a farce. Early on in the season, smaller sample size, you can't go by that. This team cannot hit. That lineup is putrid. They have no pitching. And the Mets kind of exposed the Diamondbacks for what they were. Um, so let's go game by game, though. Let's let's backtrack a little bit. We'll start earlier off in the week and, and talking about how things didn't get off to a smooth start. So the Mets start the four-game series with the Cardinals on Monday night, and Joey Lucchese was on the mound for that game. And again, Lucchese struggled. He really struggled. And the thing that really stands out to me about Lucchese, and I loved the move to trade for Lucchese. I think he's a guy that has a lot of untapped potential, and he could be a really good starting pitcher. The thing that's holding him back the most, and I think I should rephrase that and say that he could be a good pitcher, but maybe not a starting pitcher, and here's why. He only has two pitches. He has fastball that tops out at 92 miles per hour, and he has that his own pitch that he invented. It's kind of a curveball with a change-up grip. He calls it a churve. Now, he only has a two-pitch arsenal. You cannot be a starting pitcher in this league if you only have two pitches at your disposal. It's just not possible. And that churve that he has, it's a really nasty pitch. But when that's the only breaking ball that you have, the hitters can pick up the spin right off the bat, and it makes it that much easier for them to adapt and hit it or lay off if it's going to be a ball, if it's going to bounce in the dirt. 
I think if Lucchese developed a natural changeup, I know he uses the curve, the, the changeup grip on his curveball, but if he developed a natural changeup or if he maybe threw a cut fastball, then I think that he could be really effective. But as far as his role as a starter, I don't think he's longed for that role with that two-pitch arsenal. And he struggled again on Monday night. He only lasted two and two-thirds, giving up seven hits, six earned runs, uh, two big home runs that were given up, and those were really the killer. He gave up a home run to Harrison Bader in the second and then a three-run homer to Nolan Arenado in the third inning. And that kind of opened up the floodgates. He continued, surrendered five two-out hits in a row, and everything just kind of caved in on him in that third inning. And it was a shame because the Mets' offense actually showed up on Monday night. In the first three innings, they put up five runs. Kevin Pillar with a two-run homer. There was a bases-loaded walk to Jeff McNeil. They had a lot of traffic on the base path. They had Adam Waitwright on his heels. And the Mets offense showed up. Uh, But once Lucchese coughed up that lead and it became a 6-5 Cardinals lead, that's it. The Mets bats were dormant for the rest of the game. And they couldn't come back. They couldn't get anything going and and generate anything against a pretty good Cardinals bullpen, which I got to say, that bullpen for the St. Louis Cardinals is something to watch for if they're able to get into the postseason. Henesis Cabrera, uh, Giovanni Gallegos, Alex Reyes, their new closer, who hasn't given up an earned run yet this season. Uh, And don't forget the hard-throwing righty Jordan Hicks. He can get it up to 101-102. He's currently on the injured list coming back from Tommy John surgery. So those are four really good relief pitchers in that bullpen that can really anchor things down in the late innings if the Cardinals make a postseason push. I do like the Cardinals team. I do. Uh, Tuesday's game gets rained out against the Cardinals. Game two of the series, another rain out. Um, So they go with a doubleheader on Wednesday. And the big storyline from Tuesday, even though the Mets didn't play, was that Jacob deGrom was scratched from his start with what was characterized as right lat tightness. Uh, so obviously a cause for concern. You hold out hope that DeGrom could come back for his next start. And he did, which was today, Sunday, against the Diamondbacks. When we get to that game, we'll go further in depth on DeGrom because there's even more cause for concern now. So they play a doubleheader on Wednesday, um, and they're able to salvage a split of the doubleheader. In Game 1, again, the bats were just non-existent. How many times have we said that so far this season? The bats were non-existent. They end up losing 4-1, to one, and it was a 2-1 to one game for a long time, and then late in the game, I believe it was the 6th inning, or the it might have been the 5th inning, actually, Marcus Stroman, who had thrown a lot of pitches at this point, um, he surrenders a 2-run homer to none other than Mets killer Paul DeYoung, which kind of put the game out of reach, but the only reason that DeYoung was able to hit that home run was because of a Francisco Lindor error, and the fans are just piling on Francisco Lindor at this point. I mean, he can't hit. Now he's going to start making errors in the field. He can't field either. His gold glove is not going to show up. What is this guy good for? He's just wasting space on the roster for $341 million. This is what we heard all week in the beginning portions of the week, at least. That's all we heard. So they lose 4-1. to one. But then in the nightcap, you didn't have a good feeling going into the nightcap of the doubleheader because Luis Rojas was putting together a B lineup. And that's one. That's going to be my one gripe with Luis Rojas this week. I'm not going to spend a ton of time ripping on him. But that is one thing that drove me absolutely crazy. In Game 2 of that doubleheader, Jose Peraza is your starting third baseman. Tomas Nito is your starting catcher. Pilar is in the outfield. Right, like he's putting together this B-level lineup in Game 2 of the doubleheader. And I understand the line of thinking You're playing two games in one day. You don't want to tire guys out. Well, guess what? The reason you have a doubleheader is because the day before, you had a rainout. These guys are well-rested. 
the Cardinals came back in game two with the same exact lineup as game one. Why couldn't you? Well, what do I know? Because it ended up working out. The offense scored seven runs. Nito homered. <laughs> one guy that I was kind of ripping on on Rojas for, for putting in the lineup. Nito hits a home run. Pilar had a big hit. VR had a big hit. And they all came through. So it kind of made me look stupid. So that's why I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about Rojas on this episode. Because the, the number of occasions this week where I questioned Rojas... Uh, it actually ended up working out. Not defending his decisions because they were dumb decisions, as he always makes, but they just didn't come back to bite him this time around. So we're going to lay off Rojas. Um, so, yeah, so they win the game, game two with a doubleheader. Then you go into the Thursday game hoping to get a win to split the series two games apiece. And the Mets were able to do that. Now, mind you, this was probably the worst baseball game anyone has ever watched. The Cardinals pitching staff walked 11 guys. And out of the four runs that the Mets were able to score, three of them came via the bases loaded walk. So the offense was not great, but again, they had traffic on the bases, put pressure on the opposing pitching staff, and good things happen when you do that. So you can't always pile on this offense all the time. When they're getting guys on base, good things are going to happen. They did in this game, and Taiwan Walker came through with his best start as a Met. Seven innings, one hit, one run, which was unearned because of another error, a Francisco Lindor error again, uh, and eight strikeouts. So Walker was flawless, and Walker has really been like an MVP on this team so far this year. I mean, you came into the season with some trepidation as far as the starting rotation was concerned without Carlos Carrasco, without Noah Syndergaard, not knowing what you were going to get from Marcus Stroman after having not pitched since 2019, following the opt-out in 2020. Stroman's been really good, and Walker has been even better than Stroman. He really has. And... It puzzled me. A lot of fans were against that signing. I've always li- liked Taiwan Walker. He's a bona fide number three starting pitcher in anybody's rotation. The one concern with Walker was that he could never stay healthy. So if he's able to stay healthy for an entire season, this is along the lines of the, the type of baseball you're going to get from Walker. Not seven innings, one hit, no run ball. He's not going to do that all the time. But he's a really good starting pitcher. And he's showing Mets fans why they invested in him and why he could be a staple in this rotation if the Mets are going to go far. So I've been really impressed with Walker so far this season. So they escape St. Louis, splitting two games apiece in the four-game series. They come home for a three-game set with the Diamondbacks Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And they come up with a big sweep. Friday night, a 5-4 win in extra innings. Uh, They end up winning in walk-off fashion. Who's the hero? Patrick Mazika. Yeah, going to be honest with you. I knew the name vaguely just because I am like an otherworldly fan of this team. Nobody knew who this guy was when he came up to the plate. And to be quite honest with you, I don't even know why the Mets were carrying a third catcher to begin with. But they had a third catcher on their roster between McCann, Nito, and Mazika. I don't know why Mazika was up, but he was. And he comes up in a basis loaded spot in the 10th inning and is able to hit a little swinging bunt down the first baseline, drives in a run, a good comfort behind win for the Mets when they look dead in the water in the, in the beginning stages because David Peterson only lasted an inning and two thirds, completely lost touch of the strike zone in the second inning, ended up walking in a handful of runs and the Mets were behind the eight ball on a 4 nothing deficit before you can even blink. 
But they tacked on runs and they battled back. Conforto with an RBI single in the third. VR with an RBI single in the sixth. And who else? The man himself coming up with his signature moment as a New York Met. Francisco Lindor with a game-tying two-run homer in the seventh inning. City Field was rocking. He was pumped. He was batting his chest, rounding the bases. And there's also another story um, that has to do with the Friday night game that I'm going to get to in a couple minutes. But overall, a big win on Friday night. Look to carry that momentum into Saturday. And they do just that. They come up with a 4-2 win against the Diamondbacks on Saturday night. Lucchese was utilized as an opener instead of a starting pitcher. Um, Or he was used as a bulk man, I should say. They went with the opener approach. Tommy Hunter started the game on Saturday night. A guy who's been around the big leagues for a little bit as a relief pitcher. Spent some years with the Phillies. Uh, had a couple of injuries, but he's with the Mets now. Everybody in the clubhouse raves about him as far as uh, his personality is concerned. I know Trevor May has been quoted as saying that he's the funniest guy in the clubhouse. Um, so he fit right in. He pitched two innings in relief on Friday, came back on Saturday, pitched two innings as an opener, and then Lucchese came in and gave you three and a third. Two hits, one run, three strikeouts. The one run again being unearned, of course, because the Mets can't go three innings without making an error. Lucchese, he was good on Saturday, and that's why I say he could be an effective pitcher at the big league level, but until he develops a third pitch, I don't think he's going to be able to give you that much length. Like, he's like a Robert Gazelman type guy. If you use him as a bulk man, if you're going with a bullpen game, if you use him to eat some innings, if your starting pitcher falters early like David Peterson did on Friday, or if your starting pitcher gets hurt, Lucchese can kind of be that guy. And he he was utilizing that role on Saturday, and I think it was, I think it was beneficial for what he brings to the table. Now, he's a guy who could be deceptive. He's got that herky jerky motion. He doesn't throw it too hard, but he has some movement on his pitches, and he's a finesse guy. Guys like that cannot go through a batting order more than twice. Ideally, you'd like him to go through the batting order once, and that's really what Rojas did. He used Hunter for the first two innings. Brought in Lucchese so that his first inning of work would be against 8-9-1. And you were able to maximize Lucchese's potential. So I think that's kind of going to be Lucchese's role going forward. Uh, we don't know when Carrasco is coming back. That's another story I'm going to get into in a little bit. We don't know when Syndergaard is coming back. Probably sometime in June, maybe even July. Uh, and then the latest news with DeGrom, which I'm going to delve further into in a little bit as well. Um, Lucchese's role on this team is going to be prime, but I just don't know if it's going to be as a starting pitcher. Uh, and then in this afternoon's game, they cap off the sweep, another 4-2 victory. Jacob DeGrom coming back after being scratched from his day start against the Cardinals with the right lat tightness. Uh, DeGrom looked good through the first couple of innings. He was helped out by some defense. Michael Conforto made a great play in right field in the second inning on an Eduardo Escobar line drive. Um, but you could tell in the fourth and fifth inning, DeGrom... He wasn't really laboring, but he just did not have command of his stuff. He walked three guys in the fifth inning. The only other time DeGrom has ever walked three guys in an inning in his career was in a start back in 2017 against the Philadelphia Phillies. and Or I believe it was 2018 against the Philadelphia Phillies. And coincidentally, in that start, he was also coming off of an injury. He missed a start due to elbow soreness, was able to come back his next start, and he wasn't sharp. He threw 45 pitches in the first inning of that game, walked three guys, but in typical DeGrom fashion, was able to battle his way out of it without allowing any runs. And that's what he did in the fifth inning of today's game. Uh, he gave up one run, which was on a sacrifice fly, or actually was on a, um, a double play. He got a double play ball in the infield, so they sacrificed the run and ended up getting two outs. 
Uh, so he was able to limit the damage, and that's part of the thing that makes DeGrom so good, is that, yeah, when he's on his game, he's going to strike out 14, 15 guys and just plow through your order and make your guys look stupid. But when he's not on at his best and he doesn't have his A game, he's still going to be able to battle through and limit the damage and get through six innings of two-run ball. That's what makes DeGrom so good, and that's what he put on display today. The cause for concern comes in the sixth inning where DeGrom comes out after taking an at-bat, and he throws two warm-up pitches and immediately signals for McCann to come to the mound, signals for the training staff to come to the mound, and they ended up taking him out of the game. They classified it again as side tightness, and they sent him for an MRI. Uh, This seems to be something a little bit different than the lat, uh, just because they're classifying it as being further down near his back. But any time you hear that something is ailing with Jacob deGrom, it's a cause for concern because of the value that he brings to this team. Now, luckily for the Mets this season, the starting pitching has been tremendous. Uh, But even with the starting rotation being tremendous, none of those guys have been close to matching what Jacob deGrom is. So you need to be careful. You need to be cautious. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see DeGr- if we don't see Degrom uh, shut down for the next couple of weeks just to play it safe, uh, because you do not want something happening to Degrom where he's going to be out on a long term basis. If you have him miss his next two spots in the rotation, he'll be fine. I think the Mets will be fine too because they're getting good contributions from those other guys: Peterson, Stroman, Walker. Right, and they have that minor league depth this time around. You have a guy like Jordan Yamamoto that can come up and pitch. And he pitched in Tuesday's doubleheader. He, he, did, a, he did a fine job. Joey Lucchese could be that bulk guy. Gazelman could be a bulk guy. Don't forget, they also have Jared Eikhoff, a guy who's got big league experience, was a starter in the Phillies rotation for a few years. He's down in AAA. He's a guy that you could bring up, and he can eat a couple innings for you on a given day. Sean Reed Foley, one of the guys that in the Steven Match trade with the Toronto Blue Jays. He's been tremendous in two outings. He's a guy who's going to throw multiple innings. So they have options if you want to just be cautious with DeGrom and keep him shut down for two weeks, have him miss his next two starts, make sure they nip whatever it is in the butt, uh, and then he can come back and he can be vintage Jacob DeGrom. So, um, but the Mets win today's game 4-2. They cap off the three-game split, uh, the three-game sweep of the Diamondbacks, I should say. So a 5-2 week, 16-13, first place in the National League East. Uh, The Braves end up defeating the Phillies on Sunday night baseball tonight, so the Mets maintain a one-game lead in the National League East, and things are looking up. So I'm going to run through a bunch of storylines from this week. They're not directly associated with any particular moments in any particular game. They're just notable storylines throughout the week. The first one was one that caught a lot of people by surprise, and it came following Monday night's game against the Cardinals, and that was the news that the Mets had fired Chili Davis, their hitting coach, and Tom Slater, their assistant hitting coach. And listen, we know that the offense has been putrid to start the season. We know that with runners in scoring position, these guys can't buy a hit. But to pin that all on the hitting coach is moronic. It just is. If you think that the Mets going one for 18 with runners in scoring position in a three-game stretch is just falling on the hitting coach, you're a moron. I don't know how else to say it. The hitting coach does not have the bat in his hands, is not going up to the plate and not trying to hit the ball. 
Now, are there certain tweaks that can happen in a cage where some hitting coaches might be better suited to get guys out of a slump because they see things differently? 1,000%. But the Mets' offensive struggles this season do not uh, fall on Chili Davis's ledger. They don't. They just don't. And you heard the acting general manager, Zach Scott, in a conference call with the media after the game And he kind of talked in circles and didn't really give any succinct reasoning behind why the move was made other than we have a vision for what we want the process to look like. It's not about results. It's about the process. Um, And just the vibe I got from what Zach Scott was saying was the Mets, particularly the Mets under the current regime, the new regime, the new Steve Cohen Mets, They were not keen on having Chili Davis back this season, but they figured that they would give him a chance and see how things went. And when the Mets offense got off to such a putrid start, I think that made Chili Davis' seat hot, whether you agree or disagree uh, with the reasoning or, or think that that's right or wrong. That's essentially what happened. And the Mets offense, in fact, you know, weirdly enough, was starting to come around when they decided to let Chili Davis go. Because after Monday's game, I mean, the Mets had scored five runs. And yeah, they were they were held uh, scoreless for the last seven innings of that game, or the last six innings of that game. I mean, the Cardinals have a good bullpen, so that had a lot to do with it. But it wasn't because of bad at-bats. I mean, the Mets, they scored five runs in Saturday's game against the Phillies last weekend. They scored eight on Sunday night baseball to cap off a two or three winning win of the series against the Phillies, and then they start by scoring five runs again against the Cardinals. So the offense was actually starting to hit its stride, 18 runs in a three-game stretch. So rather than let the offense pick up and continue to progress because it wouldn't fit the narrative then, I think that's why they chose Monday night as the time to fire Chili Davis because they had this move in the vault ready to go, and they were just waiting for what they thought was the most opportune time to do it. Monday was the night that they thought that that was the case. Now, I liked Chili Davis. Now, when it comes to hitting coaches and pitching coaches and bench coaches, yeah, a lot of the times uh, their impact on a team can be overstated at times. Uh, It could also be understated a tad, but more so overstated than understated. Uh, So I'm not saying that every single guy on this team who's ever enjoyed success, that it was because of Chili Davis. But I think he played a large role in helping some of these guys develop. Uh, Pete Alonzo, J.D. Davis, Jeff McNeil. These are all young players. Dominic Smith. All those guys are young players who came up to the big leagues with little or no experience and had a lot of success with Chili Davis as the hitting coach. And when asked about attributing their success to something in particular, they all waxed poetic about Chili Davis. And he was well-liked in this clubhouse. And Pete Alonso actually came out and was very candid and said that he cried for a bit by his locker when he found out about the news. And the Mets clubhouse was not happy with this move. But ultimately, this new regime is coming in, and they obviously were not fans of the prior coaching staff. And I think just because of the 60-game season and the nature of, of how truncated last year's season was, I think they decided that they were going to give everyone a fair shake and not make moves prior to the season. If last year was a full 162 and the pandemic never happened and the Mets missed the playoffs, there's no doubt in my mind that when Steve Cohen came in here, that Chili Davis would be gone. Uh, Luis Rojas would be gone. I like Jeremy Hefner too, but Jeremy Hefner might even be gone. These are all old regime hires. They want to bring in their new people. 
Um, so I think one, they weren't keen on Davis coming back, and that's you know the the slow start for the offense led to them ultimately making a move. And I also think that this is a little bit of a wake up call to Luis Rojas and kind of signaling to him, hey, your your little friends here are not safe, and we made that clear by firing them. You're next if you don't pick this up because this team is far too talented to be underperforming the way that they are. And ever since they did that, I mean, they've been playing better baseball, but not that they go hand in hand. But that's the move they made. So Hugh Quattlebaum is their new hitting coach, and Kevin Howard is the new assistant hitting coach, uh, or they're kind of both assistant hitting coaches. That was another thing that Zach Scott said that kind of threw me off was that he didn't he didn't agree with having one defined hitting coach. He wanted a system of hitting coaches. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's that guy is not long for New York. I wouldn't be surprised if he's gone in a couple of years. Um, obviously, he's only the acting GM, and they're going to conduct a full general manager search in the offseason, and he'll be replaced. But just in talking to the media, he just he doesn't give he doesn't give logical answers behind his decision making. And this is a guy who's worked in the Red Sox front office. He's worked with Theo Epstein. He's widely regarded around the game, so he's obviously a smart guy. But as far as uh, enunciating it and letting people know. What going into those decisions, he's really not able to articulate it well enough for people to understand, so he comes off as not as intelligent as he actually is. So that's my, those are my qualms with uh, Zach Scott. Another, another thing, and I know I went into it before, but, you know, Jacob DeGrom, I think a lot of Mets fans um, may have thought that I was being too candid a couple of weeks ago when I talked about Jacob DeGrom and how dominant he is and how we're not going to be able to watch him pitch forever. He's 33 years old. We got to remember that. And now this series of injuries that we've seen over the past two weeks, whether related or unrelated, it's just a nature of pitchers who get up there in age. Now, no, calm down, pump the brakes. I am not suggesting that Jacob DeGrom is going down the road of having an injury riddled back end of his career. Not suggesting that. But this is something that we have to pay close attention to. And I think it rings more important because when DeGrom was talking to the media during the week, he explained this lat issue as something that he's had forever. Um, and I don't want to classify it as an issue he's had forever. But he has said since he came to the big leagues that after he pitches, when he wakes up the next day, he always has lat soreness. And he said he, it has something to do with his arm angle. And sometimes when he drops his elbow or his release point is not where he needs it to be, it puts more stress on the shoulder and the lat, and that's what leads to soreness. Uh, this week, he had that typical soreness that he always has, uh, just to a higher degree, and then it didn't get better as the week went on, which is what usually happens with that lat. It, the soreness usually subsides as he goes through his normal rehab routine and throws his bullpen. And that didn't happen this week. And he got an MRI and it was inflamed. The inflammation went down a little bit. But he began to throw in today's game. And even though he wasn't that sharp, uh, he got through five innings. He threw 60-plus pitches. And, he's come, and he comes out of the game because of a lat issue once again. So I just hope that this is not a lingering thing with him, that he's been pitching with this issue for so long that now he's aggravated it to the point where it's always going to be an issue. I'm not being, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but it's just something to keep your eye on. And the reason why you got to keep your eye on it is because of DeGrom's words. It's not because of me trying to be a pessimist. It's because of DeGrom's words. 
and what he said to the media about that lat always being sore after starts. That's all. So like I said before, I think you keep him out for two weeks. Uh, I think you'll be able to get by, especially with the depth pieces you have, the off days you have coming up. Um, I think I think you keep DeGrom out for two weeks. The team will stay afloat just fine, and you give him extra time to rest. And hey, once our starters are come back healthy, you get Syndergaard, you get Carrasco back. At that point, you're going to have six starting pitchers. Peterson might be the odd man out, but what you can even do is you could just run with a six-man rotation. This way you give all these guys an extra day of rest. Carrasco could certainly use it coming off an injury. Syndergaard can certainly use it coming off of Tommy John. They're going to want to limit his workload. If this lat is going to be a persistent issue for DeGrom, keep giving him an extra day rest in between starts, and he can go out there and, and, and deal with it. So this could be beneficial once, once all the reinforcements come. Um, speaking of the reinforcements, one of them, Carlos Carrasco, we are not going to see him when we originally planned. Carrasco was slated to throw in a rehab assignment this week, and he wasn't able to do it. Um, so they had the Mets decided to transfer him to the 60-day injured list. Now, he didn't suffer a setback, and the Mets were very clear about that. He did not re-injure the hamstring. He did not suffer a setback. But he is just not progressing as quickly as they would have hoped or that they thought he was going to progress. Uh, and transferring him to the 60-day injured list is retroactive, obviously. So he's still eligible to come off the IL on May 31st. And you're hopeful that if he comes off the 31st and he's able to pitch the next scheduled a- appearance and, and he can go out there and do so, then that's great. Uh, but he was supposed to throw in a rehab assignment this week. You're hoping that he can have another one in this coming week, ramp up his workload a little bit, and he can even join the Mets the week of... May 16th, which would be, you know, two weeks from now. Uh, But that's going to be pushed back an additional two weeks because he's not progressing as quickly as they thought he was going to. Not a big deal. The Mets are getting by, uh, but something to keep an eye on. We're not going to see Carrasco as as quickly as we thought. Uh, Another thing I want to get to, and I know I basically touched on this last week, but I think it deserves to be said again. These major league depth pieces that the Mets have filled out the roster with just continue to come up with with big moments. They continue to contribute, and, and quite frankly, they they proved that this offseason was a success, even though they didn't sign all the big fish that everybody wanted, right? Everybody wanted LeMahieu, everybody wanted Bauer, everybody wanted Springer, myself included. Everybody wanted Real Muto. They didn't get any of those guys. They traded for Lindor. They signed James McCann. They signed Trevor May. And they signed these death pieces. They signed Jose Martinez, who we haven't seen yet. But I guarantee you he'll be on the roster at some point. They signed Jonathan Villar. They signed Kevin Pillar. They signed Taiwan Walker, right? All these guys. Besides DeGrom, Taiwan Walker's been the best starter in this rotation. Kevin Pillar and Jonathan Villar have both kind of been thrust into starting roles because of the injuries to Brandon Nimmo and J.D. Davis, both of them on the injured list again. And VR and Pilar are getting a chance to play every day, and they're coming through and they're producing. VR's getting some big hits, tremendous base running. He's got speed on the base path, with which is something that the Mets have lacked over the past couple of years. Uh, Pilar is actually hitting the ball well right now. He seemed like an automatic out the first couple weeks of the season. Now that he's got his feet underneath him and he's getting steady playing time, he's starting to, he's starting to rake. Starting to hit the ball all over the the ballpark. And he's playing a tremendous center field. 
He made a couple of nice plays in today's game. He made a couple of nice plays on Friday's game. Uh, he made a couple of nice plays in the St. Louis series. So Kevin Pillar has been a godsend as well. He's been tremendous. He's been really, really solid for this club. So again, you could complain all you want about the Mets not signing the big fish. A lot of the times, and I'm not saying the Mets are going to win a championship. I hope they do. But these are how championship teams are built with their depth pieces. If you're if you're forced to put in a guy like Eric Campbell when someone gets hurt, you're not going very far. But if someone gets hurt and you have Jonathan VR and Kevin Pillar and Tomas Nito to slot into those spots, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. Almora, another one. Almora hasn't been able to hit, but he, again, he's providing you with some good defense in the outfield. So those pieces are just proven crucial once again. Um, one other thing too, the home plate umpires this year, and I don't think it's just me. You know, I have a, a group chat with a couple of my, uh, with a bunch of my Mets f- friends, uh, my friends who are Mets fans, I should say. And we were all in agreement today. The home plate umpires this year have been brutal. Brutal. I haven't seen so many fastballs that are five, six inches off the plate called for strikes. Balls that are ankle high being called strikes. Balls that are knee high being called balls. I, you know, listen, some umpires are going to have trouble with the curveball. I get it. Where it crosses the plate, where it's caught, some guys get confused, whatever. You're talking about regular four-seam fastballs, five, six inches outside. They're being called for strikes. It's, just, it's unacceptable. These umpires have been terrible. They've been terrible. So bad. I can't remember the last time I've seen umpiring this bad. And again, it hasn't cost the Mets in any games, but I mean, around baseball, it has cost teams some games. You saw the terrible call in the Sunday night game earlier this season between the Braves and the Phillies. Alec Bohm tagging up on a sacrifice fly, completely misses home plate. They call him safe. They go and review it on replay and confirm that he was safe when he never touched home plate. The umpiring, it's been an embarrassment. It's been an embarrassment. And for all you people out there that are against robot umpires, Get used to them because th- th- this is what we're we're headed towards. These umpires can't prove that they're going to do a good job. And I'm not talking about just the Angel Hernandez and Joe Wests of the world. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about guys like Jeff Nelson, who's regarded as one of the best umpires in baseball. He was calling balls and strikes on Saturday night during a Mets game. I mean, there were about eight, nine pitches that were, that it were blatant misses. Blatant. Maybe they need a little bit more time to warm up and get their feet underneath them, but holy heck, these umps have been terrible. Um, Perhaps the most important story of the week, and one that I didn't get to, and that's what occurred on Friday night between Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil. Now, I have a bone to pick with any fans and any members of the media who were upset or who were annoyed by what happened on Friday night. So, there was a play in the top of the seventh inning. There was a ground ball up the middle on the shortstop side of second base, and McNeil kind of cut over 
towards Lindor's side of the bag and made it seem like he was going to field the ground ball. So Lindor kind of sat back on his heels, and then McNeil decided to let up and not go for it. And then Lindor fielded it and, and couldn't get the throw to first base in time. The guy beat it out. Just just simple miscommunication. And it's not the first time that we've seen that kind of miscommunication happen between Lindor and McNeil, which is understandable. And new double play partners, they always need some time. There's always a learning curve to get used to the other one's tendencies, what they like to do, where they like to play, what they do well and what they don't do well. There's a lot of things to get used to before you really develop a chemistry. Double play partners are... It's the epitome of needing chemistry, those two positions, second base and shortstop. And both of those guys, Lindor and McNeil, have been struggling at the plate so far this season. And frustration seemed to have boiled over, and it looks like there were words between the two of them. And there might even have been blows exchanged between the two of them when they got back into the dugout in the tunnel. Uh, there's no visual of what exactly happened, uh, but Lindor and McNeil were not in the dugout. They were both in the tunnel, and you saw a bunch of teammates scrambling and running into the tunnel to investigate and look as if they were breaking something up. Um, so, you know, it's it happens when you got fiery, passionate people on a team who are struggling. There's going to be times where you go at each other's necks. It happens in any locker room in any professional sport. It, it shouldn't be looked at as groundbreaking news that two passionate baseball players who are not playing well exchange words with each other. It's it's not a big story. It's really not. It happens all the time. And quite frankly, it might have fired the team up and given them the jolt they needed because in his next at bat, Francisco Lindor hits a two-run homer to tie the game. And Jeff McNeil leading off in the ninth inning and Francisco Lindor is on the on-deck circle talking him up, smacking his ass, telling him, let's go do this. Right? But of course, we're in New York, so the New York media is going to try to dig and poke and prod and find out every little detail they can. And you knew, you knew going into the postgame interview, even though Lindor and McNeil were both going to be made available for postgame comment, you knew that you weren't going to find out any details of what happened. What happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. You knew they weren't disclosing any information. So Francisco gets up to the podium and he's asked a question about Steve Gelbs, about what happened. And Lindor jokingly, makes up a story. He says, yeah, we were having a debate. He goes, I saw a rat. He goes, I saw a rat in the tunnel. And McNeil tells me, no, it wasn't a rat. It was a raccoon. And I said, no, I, I, know, I know what a rat looks like. That's a rat. And, and we just had a debate about it. He's making, it's a, it's, a, it's a harmless, funny little story that Lindor made up. And... The media continues to poke and say, well, you know, uh, a lot of teammates were running in there. We don't really believe that that happened. And Lindor's like, no, that's what happened. And he's saying it with a smile on his face the whole entire time. You can tell it's his face where he's laughing it off and saying, guys, stop asking about it because you're not going to find out, first of all. And second of all, we squashed it. We're good. Everything's good. You don't need to ask about it. It was very harmless. And what this is being twisted into by the media and talk radio host, it's nauseating. I have a message for everybody out there. If you're on talk radio, if you're a, a beat reporter, a baseball writer, anything, if you had an issue with what happened Saturday, a Friday night after the game, if you had an issue with what Lindor said to the media, you are a baby. You're a baby. Grow up. Grow up. There is nothing wrong with what Francisco Lindor did. 
He made up a story, a funny, harmless story, just to display that everything is fine and dandy and there's nothing to worry about, and they moved past it. And you have people, I mean, I'm watching Sports Night after the game is over, and Mark Malusis and Sal Licata, two guys from the fan, and I like them. They're tremendous. I love listening to them. But what they were saying on Friday night, it was nauseating. Saying that Lindor is making a mockery of the franchise. This is New York. This is not Cleveland. If you can't handle New York, you're going to have to change quick. You embarrassed yourself. You made a fool of everybody. What? What are we talking about? Oh, come on. You know exactly what it was. What it was, it was two media members who were desperately hoping to find out the exact details of what happened in the locker room. And when they didn't find out because the players weren't going to tell them, they threw a temper tantrum and were throwing a hissy fit because they didn't find out. That's exactly what happened. Give me a break. An embarrassment. You made an embarrassment of yourself. This isn't Cleveland, Francisco Lindor. Are you kidding me? Come on. You guys are making it a a huge story. It's not a distraction in the locker room. Quite frankly, no one in the fan base cares about it either. Everyone was loving what Francisco Lindor was doing. Every fan in the city was loving it. And you could tell they were sitting in the locker room and looking at the tabloids and reading the front cover of the newspaper and listening to the guys on the radio. And they're probably in in the locker room laughing and giggling and cracking up saying, look at what we did to these guys. Look at these, these media members are going crazy. We're making them go crazy. This is awesome. They're sitting back laughing at your expense because you guys sound like babies. That's what they're doing right now. Give me a break. And McNeil came out on the podium and he said, yeah, what Lindor said, you know, I, he thought it was a rat. And he goes, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't even think it was a raccoon. I think it was actually a possum. And he's giggling and he's laughing. And you got beat reporters with follow-up questions. Well, you know, Jeff... Uh, are you okay with us not believing that? Because it's kind of hard to believe it based on the, the evidence that we see of players running into the clubhouse. It looked like they were breaking up a fight. Oh, come on. Give it a rest. Come on. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. The way that the New York media reaches for, for stories is just, it's, it's mind-boggling. And, and one complaint that Sal Akata had was it, he should have came out and, and don't insult our intelligence by making up a story. He should have just came out and said, guys, we're handling it internally, and that's it. We're not going to speak about it. And, and I get that on the surface, wanting him to say that, but here's why you don't say that, Sal. Here's why you don't say that. Because if Lindor said, listen, we had an argument. It's being held internally. It's none of your business, right? Next time there's a ground ball in the infield and there's miscommunication between Lindor and McNeil... Guess what happens the next day and all that night? Everyone's talking about, oh, these guys can't be double play partners. They can't play the middle infield together. Their friendship is ruined. They're, they're, they're button, button heads with each other in the locker room. That friendship is, is, is rigid. That's what the story would be. And there would be constant questions throughout the entire season about whether or not they can get along. And what are you going to do when your $341 million player can't get along with his fellow middle infielder? That would be the ongoing question all season long. Whenever one of them made an error, whenever one of them made an out, whenever any one of them are spotted in the same room together or in the same camera angle together and they're not smiling, there's always going to be people questioning what that relationship is like. So that is why you don't say that. 
But when you come out, you make up a story, you're not insulting anyone's intelligence. Lindor was laughing as he told it. It was obvious as soon as he started telling the story. You, I didn't need to be told that that was a lie. Everyone knew it was a made-up story. That was the intent, to loosen it up, lighten the mood, and show everybody that everything is fine and dandy. And because now everyone's talking about a rat and a raccoon. It took focus away from the fact that there was an actual disagreement. Everyone's just talking about the rat and the raccoon. And guess what? The next day, Lindor and McNeil are spotted in the dugout on multiple occasions, high-fiving each other, chatting it up. McNeil meets with the media after Saturday night's game. Lindor bursts into the room, gives McNeil a hug, makes a joke to the camera. Everything is fine. So give it a rest. It's an absolute joke. I couldn't get over the amount of people with media credentials who were up in arms as if Francisco Lindor just walked down the street and brutally murdered somebody. I mean, that's what they were painting this guy as for making up a story about a rat and a raccoon. Is this what we have to resort to? There's always got to be something to complain about in this town. Nauseating. Nauseating. Honestly. I've never been so disgusted and fed up with the New York media ever in my life. But that display on Friday night was just, it was so pathetic. It was so pathetic. Now listen, if the Mets lost that game and Lindor did that, I I can see where the argument would be for something like that. But they just won the game. Francisco Lindor was one of the main catalysts behind the, why they won the game with the game tying home run and they walk it off and everyone's excited. And so they were just lightening the mood. Come on, give it a rest. Will you? What a joke. And speaking of Francisco Lindor, he probably put together his best week-long stretch in a Mets uniform, which is certainly something to be excited about and is certainly something that's welcomed in my eyes, especially considering the fact that one of my key questions last week was whether or not Lindor's lack of production was starting to concern you a little bit. Because it was, it was starting to concern me a little bit. And his hitless streak got all the way up to as much as 0 for 26. And then in Thursday afternoon's game against the Cardinals, he was able to get a ground ball base hit into right field to snap the skid. And you could tell the weight of the world was coming off Lindor's shoulders. And sometimes that's all you need is for something to fall in. Doesn't necessarily need to be a hard hit ball. Doesn't need to be the best swing in the world. You just need a hit. You need to get off the schneid of that 0 for 26 streak. You just need to end it. Because when you have something like that hanging over you, yeah, a slump starts because of something physical. There's some kind of mechanical tweak that you need to make in order to get back to swinging the way you need to swing. But when you're you're starting to accumulate a streak of that ilk, 0 for 26, and when you start playing in front of the home crowd and the boo birds are coming out and you're starting to hear everybody in the stadium get on your case, that's when it starts creeping in mentally. And when you get into your head, you dig yourself six feet deeper. Because like I said, a slump starts with something physical and you can watch tape and there can be something that stands out to you right away. Oh, okay, that's the mechanical tweak I need to make. But when you're in your head... That obvious mechanical thing might not catch your eye because you're just overthinking everything. And I think that's what happened to Lindor. I mean, you saw multiple people, Harold Reynolds, Mark DeRosa on MLB Network, Todd Zeal broke it down in the post in the postgame. Lindor was 
The front hip was flying out for Lindor on every single pitch. That front hip was flying open. Even when he didn't swing, even when he was just taking pitches, that front hip would fly open. And when your front hip flies open like that, it does two things. Number one, it leaves you extremely vulnerable to the breaking ball. Yeah, you can adjust to the breaking ball, but when you're adjusting and your front hip is already open, your bat speed has to slow down in order to meet the ball. Instead of having the ball meet your bat, your bat needs to slow down to meet the ball. And you have no power. You can't generate any power in the backside when your hip is flying open like that. Even if it's not a breaking ball. And if you get a fastball, still your front hip is flying open. You're not generating any power in the backside. And there's no torque in your swing because you're already open. So even if you get the barrel through the zone, you're getting the barrel through the zone slowly. And you're not being able to generate the power to get the ball out of the ballpark or drive it into a gap. It's just going to be soft contact. And that's what we saw from Lindor for a good two, three-week stretch was just it was terrible contact. He wasn't putting together good swings. He finally got that hit in Thursday's game against the Cardinals. And now he's starting to come around. He had the big home run Friday night, which was like his signature moment so far as a Met. And then on Saturday night, he followed again. He had a double into right center field. And he also had an RBI single up the middle. And there were two good things about those two at-bats. Number one, the double, he was way out in front once again, which he has been all year. But even though he was way out in front, his weight was out in front. But his front hip was not open. His hip was square to the baseball. So even though he was still out in front, he was still able to use that torque and generate power to be able to hit the ball into the gap. Whereas if that front hip was open, it would just be a lazy fly ball. And then on the single up the middle, he got jammed and he broke his bat. Now, it was right down the middle. The pitch was right down the middle. It's a pitch that you would want someone to hit out of the ballpark. So while you might be frustrated and saying, damn, that was a pitch you should have you driven out of the ballpark, Lindor, I thought it was actually an encouraging sign for me because we're seeing him way out in front of everything to see him actually wait back and get jammed on a pitch because he waited too long. That's a good sign. Because he's got finally getting out of the habit of the front hip flying open all the time and just being way out in front. He sat back, trusted his hands, had good bat speed. And that's why he was able to muscle that ball up the middle even though his bat broke and he was jammed. And even in Sunday's game against the Diamondbacks, he didn't have any hits. But again, he just put together good at bats. He's not chasing. He's putting good swings on the ball. And you're starting to see him turn a corner. And I said this last week. The guy's a four-time All-Star. He didn't stumble into that by accident. He didn't stumble into that by accident. This guy, when he is playing his brand of baseball, is one of the top 15, top 20 players in the game. It, it It's simple. Yeah, he's had a rough stretch, and he had a rough 2020, and this was a, a large sample size, so it started to get people worried a little bit. But again, he compiled six years worth of otherworldly numbers. You going to tell me at 27 years old, this guy just forgot how to hit a baseball? No, I don't buy it. He's going to come around. There's still some tweaks. There's still room for him to get better. But what we've seen the past three, four days out of Francisco Lindor is certainly reasons for you to stop 
getting overly worried about Lindor because he's going to come around. He's only 100 at-bats into the season here. Got a lot of people here that are like writing him off and saying that his contract is a terrible contract already uh, 30 games into his Mets career, 29 games into his Mets career. 29 games and 100 at-bats, and we're saying that a 10-year investment might as well uh, flush $341 million down the toilet. Like the audacity for some people to think that way. But I tried to tell you, give it a little bit of time. He's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. So let's look ahead to next week and see what we got, shall we? Uh, Another couple of days off for the Mets because of this weird, odd schedule that they've been given. Another two-game series against an American League East opponent. This time it's the Baltimore Orioles who are coming to town for two. Uh, Tuesday night against Baltimore, Wednesday night against Baltimore. So they're off Monday, off again on Thursday, and then they travel down south into Florida to take on the Tampa Bay Rays, a three-game series at Tropicana Field Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, Friday's game, 7 o'clock game, uh, Saturday and Sunday, both afternoon games. And both Tuesday and Wednesday against the Orioles are home at City Field. Tuesday's game, 7 o'clock, Wednesday's game, an afternoon, uh, noon start. And the uh, big storyline for this series against the Orioles is that on Wednesday, the night Matt Harvey will be taking the mound for the Orioles, pitching against the Mets for the first time since he left in 2017. So, something to look forward to. You know, I, I wasn't thrilled with the way that Harvey's Mets tenure ended. And I wasn't the biggest fan of Harvey's personality. Um, And he had his shortcomings. And he made his mistakes. And there were a lot of things that Harvey did that warranted the fans not being acceptant of him. But you can also acknowledge at the same time that he's been dealt a crappy hand. With the thoracic outlet syndrome, which is... You have to undergo surgery for that, and that's essentially a death sentence for some of these pitchers. I mean, none of these guys have ever been able to come back and 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 even be effective enough to be a major league pitcher, let alone regain their form before the surgery. Mark Pryor, Chris Carpenter, it's a handful of guys who have had to undergo thoracic outlet syndrome and have come back and just could not stick around in the big leagues. And for a little while, it looked as if Harvey was headed down that same road as well. Uh, He struggled with the Reds. He hooked on with the um, Angels last year, and he stunk with them. He went to Oakland on a minor league contract and stunk with them. But hey, he's six starts into his Orioles career. He's got a 3.80 ERA. He's got a 3-2 record. And he looks like he might be finally untapping his potential uh, as far as learning how to pitch with diminished velocity and reinventing himself. Harvey was a power pitcher when he came up, throwing 97, 98, wicked slider. Now all of a sudden, you're a 93, 94 mile per hour pitcher, and you definitely have to switch up the way that you're going to attack hitters. And I think in the beginning, it was probably an ego thing for Harvey. I'm the dark knight. I'm going out there, and I'm and I'm throwing my fastball, try to hit it. And everyone was hitting it. And now he's kind of turned into more of a finesse guy, pitching with movement, switching his looks, varying his timing. And listen, I'm happy for him. I'm happy that he's found some success because a guy that talented, even though he had some behavioral mistakes in a Mets uniform, 
and there were some things he did that you didn't agree with, at the end of the day, you want to see a guy that talented go out on his own terms. You don't want to see the game ripped away from him because of of injuries that are out of his control. So kudos to Matt Harvey. I hope he pitches well in every single game he pitches in this year, except for Wednesday afternoon against the Mets. I hope they tee off on him. (laughs) With that being said, that'll do it for episode five. Um, Housekeeping things, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Mets Mayhem. That's the handle on Twitter, at Mets Mayhem. You can also, if you want to discuss anything about the show, send in any fan questions, any questions, concerns, comments, anything, you can email us. Uh, MetsMayhem at gmail.com open to uh, everybody to send in whatever you want as long as you send us an an email I'll get to it I'll look at it I'll respond 100% Um, you can also follow my personal Twitter account at AndrewMay underscore 21 A-N-D-R-E-W-M-A-Y underscore 21 on Twitter so give me a follow on those platforms we're recording now it's Sunday May 9th episode will be up in the morning Monday May 10th and we have a week full of Mets baseball again that I'm looking forward to watching. So we're in first place. Things are looking up. Offense is starting to come through a little bit. I mean, they're not slugging the ball all over the park, but they're starting to produce with runners in scoring position. The starting pitching has been terrific. The bullpen actually has been terrific. And Anthony DeComo put out a stat on Twitter before. Since, since April 22nd, I think he said, the Mets bullpen ERA is 1.77, best in the big leagues by a wide margin. There's not another team that's even close. And I think as a whole staff, uh, the bullpen for the whole season has the fourth lowest ERA in baseball. So, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I came on this podcast week one. I said this bullpen is a problem, and I was kind of roasting this guy. I was roasting Jacob Barnes, and he's been really good. And Familia's got a ERA close to one. And Castro has really figured out how to pitch. And Trevor May looks like a lockdown eighth inning guy. So maybe all it needed was for me to get on the mic, let it rip, and push these guys to get to where they need to go. And I mentioned those other guys before too. Gazelman eating some innings. Sean Reed Foley eating some innings. I mean, everyone who's been called upon, for the most part, has been good. And Edwin Diaz, he's had a couple shaky outings. But at the end of the day, he's 5 for 5 in save opportunities. You can't ask for much more than that. So things are looking good. So hopefully the Mets take care of business next week. Two against the Orioles, Tuesday and Wednesday. Three against the Rays, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's going to do it for Episode 5. Follow on social media. Podcast out tomorrow on all platforms. Thank you, everyone, for their continued support and continuing to listen. My name is Andrew May. I'll see you guys next time. And as always, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.